kidneys. That's what we're going to talk a little bit about. Why do we talk about kidneys in a course like this? You all know that you have them. You all know that they can go wrong. You all know that they are involved with getting rid of the fluid from the excess fluid from the body. And as they do that, they also help in getting rid of some of the waste products. Let's use the correct term, waste products, because people talk about it gets rid of the toxins. Well, they only become toxins when they get into excessive doses or excessive amounts. So when the kidneys fail, the waste products, which would normally just be there and gotten rid of, those become toxic to the body. The excessive uh, ammonia, the excessive creatinine, uh, even potassium, which is a wonderful, wonderful electrolyte. When the kidneys cannot get rid of it and it goes up, it can kill you and put you into sudden death arrhythmia, rhythm disturbance. So the kidneys, you know we've got them. They are amazing and wonderful organs. Like everything we've talked about, they are, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. And this is very stylized, but you have two of them. They look like some of the beans that you ate at lunchtime. A bean on each side with a little stalk going down to the bladder. What we should li like you to understand from this hour we're going to spend together is the importance of the kidney in eliminating waste from the body. A grasp of the kidney is important in regulating blood pressure. We touched a little bit on that. It's a very complex system, but so that you understand that the kidney, which works very closely with the excretion of potassium and sodium and, and keeping the acid normal in the body, uh, plays a role in blood pressure and in keeping the environment of the cells constant. We should be able to list at least two hormonal functions related directly to the kidney. So that's basically for the theoretical component. But the importance of knowing about the kidneys in a health ministry's component is to know that they function well, that they are there eliminating the waste. You need to drink adequate water to promote good kidney health and good health of the body in general. And the way that drinking water promotes kidney health, it promotes flow of urine through the bladder. So that's a very important part of good health. But also for you to understand, and we're going to look at a, a section or an aspect of kidney function, which is maintaining a constant environment for the cells to function in. We didn't mention that because we, we, we haven't done the, the full course with you, but there is a, a process called homeostasis. Homeostasis. That is, for a cell, and Dr. Handyside showed you the cell with all its basic functioning organelles and its nucleus and the Golgi apparatus and the mitochondria and so on. For those cells to function well, they have to be kept in a constant environment. The way for you to function well and to be awake, especially after lunch, and this is the after lunch lecture, is to have the environment as constant as possible, not too hot, in fact, a little cold would be better than hot at the, no, no, <laughs> to keep people awake. Uh, a good flow of air. And you sleep best when you have a good, constant environment. You exercise best. When you're not exercising, running around in a suit. You know, you put on light clothes, special shoes, and you can exercise better. So the cell is the same way. It needs to be in a nice, constant environment. The potassium needs to be correctly maintained in a certain range. The sodium, the calcium, the sugar. And that's what the homeostasis is all about and what the negative feedbacks, the interactions of all those hormones, thyroid hormone, insulin, keeping the sugar right, keeping it down, not keeping it too low. You'll find as you, we talk a little bit later about the gastrointestinal system, how there are enzymes and acids and juices which help to do exactly what we're talking about. Keeping each cell functioning in a very constant, friendly environment. And what you'll hear is that 
the kidneys, along with the lungs, play a very important role in maintaining a constant acid level or a constant pH. Have you heard of pH? Those of you who have swimming pools or have ever worked with a swimming pool, when our girls were younger, we used to have swimming pools for them. And uh, when they were small, they loved it. You couldn't get them out of it. When they got to about 16, 17, 18, they would, they would walk past it. They would lie and suntan next to it, but they didn't get into it. And I used to clean it, and I used to get the pH right and the chlorine right, and I wished that that pool had kidneys. I was the kidney, switching it on, filtering it, emptying it, putting in. But the kidneys, along with the lungs, help to maintain the pH of the body at a standard and steady 7.4. 7.4. And if we were to do a blood test on any of you right now and put a needle into your, one of your arteries, with a little bit of anesthetic, of course, and take out that blood and measure it on a special machine, a blood gas machine, an astrap machine, we would find that all of your pHs would be 7.4. Isn't that amazing? But then come along people who say to you, you must have alkali water for your health. Have you heard about alkali water? Hold on to that point, and we'll come to it in a moment. The body... God has placed in your body wonderful mechanisms to take care of alkali, acids, and it doesn't, it doesn't need people selling it in expensive bottles saying to you, this is going to be better for you because once it goes into your mouth and down into your stomach, there's acid which changes the pH of that water immediately. And then as it's absorbed, whether it's got some uh, base and alkaline aspects to it, the kidneys and the lungs immediately adjust the pH to 7.4. So we need to, the part of the education about the kind of functions that the kidney performs is so that we understand the basis of sensible, evidence-based, physiological practices so that we won't be taken up with, what's it, um, something devised, uh, cunningly devised fables, okay? Cunningly devised fables. Each kidney is bean-shaped and measures four to five inches in length, and uh, this is what they look like. You've probably seen them as you walk through past the butcher shop, uh, kidneys uh, from uh, sheep and uh, so on. They're situated on each side of the vertebral column, so about at this level here, and uh, in they are what we call retroperitoneal organs. So whereas the uh, intestine and the liver hang into the cavity inside the abdomen, they are behind it, right against the muscles of your back. And part of the reason for that is they need stability, and they also need the protection of those strong back muscles. Um, sometimes if people are subjected to trauma and have back trauma or fall or have a blow in the back, they will present with hematuria, which means blood in the urine. That's because they've been bruised on the kidney. So the good Lord, just like he put the brain inside the skull so it can be protected, the kidneys are protected by the muscles. The right kidney is a little lower down than the left kidney, and can you think perhaps why that would be? The right kidney, the kidney on the right-hand side, is a little lower down than the kidney on the left-hand side. Hmm? There's a liver on the right-hand side. Okay? So there's a liver here, a big organ called the liver, and it displaces the right kidney down a little bit, a fraction. Um, it's composed of two components, the cortex, which is the outer portion, and the medulla, which is the inner portion. This is the medulla and the cortex. So if you cut it right down the middle in half, 
This is what you'll see. It has a very rich and strong blood supply. Very important to remember. And part of the reason that a good circulation is very important is without it, the kidney will not survive. Just as much as the brain is very sensitive, the kidneys are sensitive, although they will survive a shortage of oxygen much longer than the brain does, but they have an extremely rich blood supply of veins, veins and arteries. Then also, you'll see that they have um, the, um, a special structure, and we're going to talk a little bit about this, because this structure is what enables the kidney to function well. It's related to its blood supply. Sorry, each kidney has numerous glomeruli, thousands of them, hundreds of millions of them. And um, it's related to the way the blood vessels come into this special pouch called a glomerulus. And this glomerulus has in it blood vessels which flow through, and there's a special membrane which allows selective filtration of fluids. This is a most wonderfully designed filter. And the, um, there's a blood vessel bringing the blood into this portion and a portion of the blood vessels taking it away. And it comes in under significantly high pressure. That's what the heart is busy doing. It's generating a pressure, pushing the blood through this filter at a special pressure and this membrane allows only certain substances through it. It doesn't allow the proteins to be lost. It doesn't allow sugar under normal circumstances to be lost. It only allows certain of the chemicals to go out, like, for example, creatinine, ammonia. It will allow some of the electrolytes to go out, sodium, potassium, and calcium. But then, there's a very, very um, wonderful, not only regulatory nerve supply of the kidneys, but there's a very, very carefully constructed apparatus called the nephron attached to each glomerulus. It's the functional unit of the kidney. And really, it's one of the most amazingly complex um, structures in the body, working on gradients, working on selective, what we call permeability. But the, the fluid is filtered here in the glomerulus. The blood vessel comes in, the blood vessel goes out, and then the, the fluid is pushed through this tube, goes all the way down, comes up again. On all of these what we call tubules, there's a descending, an ascending, a proximal convoluted, that's a convolution, Lo sorry, loop of Henle, sorry, proximal convoluted, loop of Henle, distal convoluted, and then there's a collecting duct. So the, the fluid that's pressed out of here from the, from the bloodstream then goes through a whole lot of filtering processes and changes and exchanges. So if there's too much potassium, potassium is pushed into the into the inside of the tube so it can be gotten rid of. If there's not enough sodium in the blood, sodium will be reabsorbed. And all of this is controlled by a special apparatus which monitors what's going on in the blood. So it's an amazing feedback system going on all the time, not only measuring the amounts of electrolytes in the blood, the amount of acid in the blood, the amount of uh, uh, it also includes measuring the blood pressure. And the blood pressure is very specifically, sensitively picked up in the glomerulus itself and also in another specialized group of cells called the juxta glomerular apparatus. It's very, very complex. But it's amazing and wonderful how it works. Tubules are located in the cortex and the medulla. And the urine flows from these collecting ducts into the calyx of the kidney and then into the renal pelvis, which is this beginning portion of the, 
ureter, which is the pipe that conducts the urine down into the bladder. And the urine then travels down the ureter, which connects to the bladder. The bladder has a capacity to expand. It has the capacity to act as a reservoir to a certain point. And when it begins to fill, you know exactly what that feels like. You can control it to a point, but then comes the time when you need to go and empty it. Just an interesting point and maybe a piece of useless information, don't drive with a safety belt on and a full bladder. So in other words, don't drive with a full bladder. Because if you are involved in an accident with a belt across a full bladder, you get a bladder rupture. So before you're going to travel any significant distance and you know that there are no toilets on the highway, empty your bladder. Are you smiling? Exactly right. Okay, so there's a lot of anatomy, but this is now one of those um, nephrons just carefully splayed out for you to see how it works. And there are millions of these, or hundreds of thousands, right next to each other, and all of them are exchanging fluid and electrolytes in a way, and ultimately what you get is you get urine. And what is the urine? The urine is a, an, a filtrate of blood. Now, I'm going to get to the point where... Um, yeah, I'd, I'd like to talk about the glomerular basin membrane, this very specialized membrane which filters and is the principal barrier preventing certain molecules like your proteins getting out. It prevents sugar getting through, depending on the molecular size of a substance. And it functions allowing selectively certain substances through and keeping them back. Not only because it has certain pores and holes which are available, but on the electrical charges. You saw when Dr. Handysides told you about the cell membrane, there's hydrophilic, hydrophobic, negative charges, positive charges. Uh, proteins are negatively charged. So when they come to this filter, to this membrane, it pushes them away. Like repels like, doesn't it? Opposites attract. So when a negative protein comes to a negative membrane wall, it pushes it back. Whereas potassium coming on is positively charged, may more readily go through, but it's often an active mechanism. So it would be like we open the door and allow people to come in. Anyone can come in provided you have a badge. That's part of the filtering mechanism. But then we stand at the door. We could either grab everybody who comes by and force them through, or we can be selective. And that's exactly what this membrane is. This membrane is selective. It allows certain things through and leaves the others behind. So that the very important principal issues like proteins, and antibodies, which you need very, very importantly, as well as clotting factors, that you don't lose those through the kidney, and they keep circulating in the blood. Basically, you're looking at a most amazing and wonderful, there's the name, selective permeability, filter mechanism. Now, what I'd like to share with you here is the wonder of the blood flow to the kidney. The kidney receives approximately a fifth of the blood pump from the heart. About 1,200 milliliters, 1.2 liters every minute of blood is going through your kidneys. 1.2 liters every minute. How much urine do you think you produce a day? Huh? How much urine do you think you produce a day? About 10 cups. 10 cups would be 2.5 uh, liters? Yeah, not that much. I think about 3 liters. 10 cups, that's 2.5 to 3 liters, a lot. Most people produce about 1,500 mils, about 1.5 liters of urine a day. Obviously, depending on how much you drink. Here's the other thing. How much water should you drink every day? 
Six to eight glasses. Eight to ten. Am I having any offers on eight to ten? Six to eight? You go with eight? So are you going to discriminate because I'm short and plump? <laughs> Watch it, I'm listening to you. <laughs> I heard you translating. <laughs> Did you hear what Dr. Handyside said? I said, how much water should you drink a day? How much? Enough. enough. What's enough? You see, six to eight if you're walking through the Sahara Desert, is not enough. If you're in a cool environment and you're not moving around much, six to eight is fine. So it's really that you take enough liquid so that you are not thirsty plus a third. So if you're drinking 1.5 liters a day and that slakes your thirst, then add an extra 500 mils, so take two liters a day. That's enough. There is another test, and there are studies which bring the, the, the test into question on the color of the urine. If you, you know, it's a very crude test, but it's an it's a available test. If you have a look at the color of the urine you produce, don't tell me you, people, I'm not gonna look at anybody when I say, don't tell me you don't look at your urine. Of course you do. I walk in and I see people gazing at it, let alone looking at it. And so you should. So you should. I mean, how would you know if there's blood in it if you never look at it? If it goes to a, a wrong color, if you become jaundiced and you, whatever it may be, look at the color. If it's a bright orange, if it's this color, you're not drinking enough fluid. It should be the color of water about. Okay, about the color of water. Oh, you can do that, but you're not going to sleep too well. <laughs> you know, I go walking with a very good friend of mine when we travel. And for the first 15 minutes of the walk, I hear... And I, I didn't want to be rude in the beginning. I, I said, what have you been doing? He said, I drank. <laughs> so I. No, I'm just, it's, like a, it's like a compass. <laughs> and it's the, it's the water from the. From the and I, I, I admired that. I thought, wow, I wish I could drink enough water to make a noise as I walked. But that's because when we walk, we don't play games. But So it's a good thing, and, and my wife does the same thing. She gets out of bed in the mornings, and she drinks two or three glasses of water, drinks them down almost religiously, and um, then drinks it through the rest of the day. We all should be drinking water regularly. Uh, you can make a fetish of it, and one of the good tests that you can do is just have a look at the color of the urine. It'll tell you. But your thirst... God has put in a wonderful mechanism of thirst. That helps you to know whether you need water. And when you need water, drink it. Somebody asked me the question I want to share with you now. Um, are carbonated drinks bad for the pH of the body? Do they change the pH? Carbonated drinks are not a problem from the pH point of view. Carbonated drinks are a problem from what comes with them. It's the sugars that come with them. And in the, in the uh, artificially sweetened ones, it's sometimes the sodium which is a problem. So water is far better to drink. Doesn't mean you must never have a carbonated drink. But know that the problem with carbonated drinks is particularly the amount of sugar which goes with them. So the kidneys get 1,200 mils per minute of blood, and yet, as a result of even that amount of blood, we produce two liters of urine a day. 
So 98% of the fluid which goes through the kidneys is reabsorbed. So 180 liters of ultrafiltrate, 180 liters of ultrafiltrate is produced. So when it goes through those special little anatomical structures called the glomeruli and the uh, collect the nephrons, It'll, if you were to stop the process there, you could collect 180 liters of ultrafiltrate. But at the end of the process, after it's been through the collecting, through all these um, tubules, goes down into the collecting duct, you end up having two liters. It's a wonderful process. And at the same time, it's gotten rid of the toxins, the breakdown products of protein uh, in the urine. It's gotten rid of some of the acids, some of the alkalines, according to the need of the body. If you've got too much acid, it'll get rid of acid. If you've got too little acid, it'll retain acid. And it does that through retaining uh, bicarbonate and getting rid of hydrogen ions. But it's a miraculous and wonderful process. So it's designed in order to... Um, to filter the body uh, of its um, waste products. Interestingly, there are two kidneys. People can live with one kidney. There are some abnormalities where uh, the kidneys don't separate fully during the embryological process, and there's a horseshoe-type kidney, a rather big kidney. People can donate a kidney. Healthy people can donate one kidney and still live a normal life. People who've received one kidney and have only one functioning kidney can live a normal life, which shows us that we have tremendous reserves put in by the Creator that allow us to function even under times of difficulty. For example, trauma, illness, um, cancer, a kidney has to be removed because it's got a cancerous growth in it. Uh, it may be damaged uh, from an accident. It might have had an infectious process. You can still live with one kidney. So the kidneys filter the blood. They excrete the waste products, get rid of the excessive sodium, potassium, and chloride. They eliminate many of the medications that we take in, particularly things like aspirin and penicillin. They are directly eliminated through the kidneys. There's another, and you'll hear about that in the next talk, there's another very important organ that deals with taking toxins and waste products out of the body, and that's the liver. So when people talk to you about detoxing, you're doing that all the time. You're doing it all the time because God has put in the systems. And our daily living should be a daily life of temperate behavior in eating and drinking and sleeping and exercising that all of these processes take place in a meaningful and healthful way. The major waste products, urea, creatinine, uric acid, and lactate, and all of these in the um, pr production of metabolic products and making of energy. Well, you know, I don't know how you go about cleaning your liver. I know you hear it, and that's why, you know, we, we have difficulty in understanding that because it's doing it all the time. So, you know, it's kind of like a, it's, it's cleaning your mind more than it's cleaning your body. And again, I don't want to knock it. <laughs> it's confusing the mind. It's confusing the mind. Because basically, that's why I said, if you're drinking a lot of water, you're eating fruits, vegetables, and nuts, and, and a little bit of dairy, and you have adequate protein intake, and you're exercising well, and you are resting well, your body's on a permanent, healthful basis. Now, if you come to the issue of fasting, because it's a spiritual issue, well, that doesn't do any harm either to do that. It does. Increased breakdown products because you're now starting to live on ketones because you're not getting a constant supply of 
of energy, but it can be done. And if you're going to fast, because as Ellen White says, the true fast really is to be temperate and modest and moderate in all that you do. But if you have something in mind that you want to, the Lord to focus and change your heart on, or that you want to keep bringing to his throne, fasting one day a week is a great thing to do if you have the health to do it with. But the detoxing story has no physiological basis to it. No physiological. And people say, I, I'm going on a detox issue of grape juice and grapes and, and whatever it may be. It really, there's no rationale. And if it doesn't have a rationality to it, what is it? Irrational. Okay. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, um, it, it, and it appeals to the G factor. You know the G factor is? The gullibility factor. <laughs> You're right. There's a huge... Just a sec. He wants to translate them. Okay, go ahead. Okay, Esther. No, one-fifth of the blood that the heart pumps goes to the kidneys. That's a very good question. The kidney, you can actually cross-clamp the aorta. This is the big blood vessel coming out of the heart and going down to supply the kidneys and all the organs down here. Sometimes when people get what we call an aortic aneurysm, they need to have that piece where the, the aorta blows out like a balloon. You need to cross-clamp. Because, I mean, you can't just put a knife in it, they'll bleed to death. So you've got to cross-clamp the aorta, and sometimes it's above the kidneys. So when you cross-clamp it, you've got a certain amount of time, probably 30 to 40 minutes, that you can with safety in a healthy individual, well, in healthy kidneys, where you can cross-clamp that, that aorta and get the work done you need to get done and then let the flow come again. If it goes longer than that, you get a, a um, tubular necrosis, which means that these, the little tubules we talked about and the units, the nephrons, but particularly the glomeruli, they get totally damaged. Sometimes they regenerate. Sometimes they don't. So it is very, very important that these um, kidneys get a constant blood supply. Has everybody signed their paper? It's here because all of you might want to get it. Not everybody seems to have signed. If you haven't signed, everybody signed. Some are not coming there at the Okay, the other thing I want to remind you of, we talked about blood pressure this morning. The kidneys are very important components in the control of blood pressure. They, um, if, if the blood pressure drops, it's sensed by the kidneys, and they secrete a hormone called renin into the bloodstream. This activates an amazing uh, string of events, a cascade of events which takes place, causing the production of a hormone called angiotensin one and then angiotensin II, which are the most potent, what we call, vasoconstrictors. Now, vaso means blood vessel. Constrictor means it closes it down. So if, remember we talked about a hose pipe the other day. If you, want a hose, if you want fluid to go through, you open it up, and it'll flow through quickly. But if, you've got, if you want to increase the pressure, you'll narrow the amount of diameter that you have. Likewise in the body, if the blood pressure tends to drop through trauma, dehydration, hemorrhage, um, this hormone is released and vasoconstriction takes place and immediately the blood pressure goes up. 
allowing blood to go to the vital organs, brain, kidneys, particularly circulation of the, of the heart. Um, and this whole system is controlled within the kidneys, and there's that wonderful um, mechanism inside the kidneys itself with what's called the juxtaglomerular apparatus, monitoring the pressure of the blood coming into the glomerulus and the blood pressure going out of it. I mean, it's mind-boggling. And it changes all the time. When salt intake is decreased, the blood pressure tends to decrease. We've talked about sodium a lot. I'm not going to take too much time on that. But just to remember that the control takes place here within the kidneys. All patients who have high blood pressure and the question on the pre-hypertension and all who are at risk for high blood pressure should limit their intake of salt. Kidneys damaged by disease are unable to sense the blood pressure and hence those individuals often have very difficult to control blood pressure. And you need to put them sometimes on three, four, five different medications to control their blood pressure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that. Very important. We've talked about, this morning I talked about the non-medicine approach and the medicine approach. Well, it really should be called the non-drug approach and then the medication approach. Basically, every one of us should be on a life style or way of life approach to healthful living. Decrease the salt, do the exercise, strive for normal body weight, drink fluids, rest appropriately, not smoke, not drink alcohol, decrease the salt intake. If the kidneys are abnormal or in situations and there's a very strong genetic link to high blood pressure, in those situations People who have anything beyond pre-hypertension, if they've got mild to moderate hypertension, they require at least one medication. Those with moderate require two to three medications concurrently to maintain a normal blood pressure, to keep the blood pressure low. Now, that often flies in the face of people who want to go, well, we want to go the natural route. There's no question. If an individual is overweight, if an individual is sedentary, if an individual is, has those problems and presents with high blood pressure, you then put them on a weight-reducing diet, you cut down their salt, you get them to exercise, their blood pressure controls much more readily. I've, I've had patients, we've all had patients who, as they drop their weight, they exercise more, they begin, you begin to throw some of the tablets away. You go down from three to two to one, measuring it. Some can do without it altogether, but it needs to be closely monitored because I've seen catastrophic results of people who go to, we're going to do this all the natural way now. We're going to throw away the medication. You're going to eat. And we talked about the diet, important. Lots of fruits, grains, vegetables, low saturated fats, low salt also makes a difference. But in certain individuals, and particularly where the kidney is diseased or there's a genetic-related component to the high blood pressure, they must take medication. They must. I mean, it's, you know, otherwise they get strokes, kidney failure, heart attacks. And, you know, it's one thing to die from something, from a stroke, from a heart attack. It's much worse to be w struggling around or bedridden because you're paralyzed and you've had a stroke. I went to a lecture. Um... You know, I don't... I, you know, I, I, I think that basically I didn't hear her talk. What I'd like to say to you is this, is that we see very, very positive results. And when, I don't know what you're talking about, natural. 
do you mean exercise and weight loss, or you're talking about herbal? Well, we've talked a little bit about that. And um, it's interesting that we need to, one of the reasons we go the evidence-based lecture right near the beginning is so that we understand on what we base our practice. It's got to be based on tested evidence. Now, if you take the, the so-called natural, when I say natural, penicillin's a natural fungus. We were teasing or joking around a little bit with a good colleague in the corridor a little while just before lunch. And uh, I said to him, I said, you know, you could take aspirin. It comes from the bark of a willow tree. <laughs> That's pretty natural. There are some amazing cancer chemotherapeutic agents. Vinca, vincristine, comes from the vinca alkaloids. Um, there's a wonderful treatment for uh, malaria which uh, comes from the Artemisian bush from China. So it's all natural, but it's purified, it's tested, its safety is guaranteed and is warranted. Um, and so I have a problem when, for example, echinacea gets touted as, a, as the cure for influenza and colds, and then some interested people say, well, let's test it. And they test it. And how did they test it? They took echinacea, gave it a group of people who had influenza, and they took another group and didn't give them echinacea. And they found, and they, they went to very careful lengths to measure how they could know that it was, one was better than the other even to the point of taking the Kleenex, the tissues, that people blew their noses, and weighing them to see the amount of, of excretion that came out. And you know what they found? That echinacea was no better than placebo. You see, the importance is the ongoing monitoring. People turn around and say, and you know, we can give you a disclosure right now. We have no shares in any drug companies, medical companies. We don't. I'll get to you right now on that. And the, the issue that I'm really making here is that the one thing that they do do is that they continue to monitor the outcomes. For example, Vioxx, Merck, Sharp and Dome, ended up paying out a huge amount of money because people were monitoring this wonderful anti-arthritic drug which caused increased heart attacks. They're still paying millions of dollars in reparation for what was done. People can take echinacea, they can take whatever substance in John's wart and get cataracts. They have no comeback because nobody talks about it. Just to mention to you that the, the, the importance of an ongoing monitoring system question? Oh, you mean the kidney can be damaged through medications? Oh, you're absolutely right. The kidneys are very, very sensitive. They're actually very strong, but they're very sensitive. You take uh, excessive doses of acetaminophen, if you take an overdose of it, it can damage the kidneys. Uh, that's the pain medication. You take excessive amounts of anti-inflammatories can damage the kidneys. Um, there are some certain antibiotics that will damage the kidneys. Cert the, there are many um, chemotherapeutic agents which cause damage to the kidneys. By monitoring it, you see, when it was given, you see, as they give these medications and test them, they go through three phases of study. They first look at a phase one, is to see whether the medication does what it should do. Phase two and three are the efficacy and safety before it's set out and allowed to be used in public. And so in, and you see now the question that I always have when I look at 
um, all these natural things on the shelf, and I look to say, who's done the tests? <coughs> Nobody has. Nobody's done the tests. And, uh, and then suddenly we hear down the line, oh, but uh, ginkgo biloba, which people like to think is great for their, for their memory, results in increased bleeding. Some people not only didn't have any improvement in their memory, but they had increased brain hemorrhages. Patients, we, have a very, we had a very good friend who was a plastic surgeon who told us that one of the biggest problems they faced in plastic surgery was the supplements people were taking. Ginkgo, they would find the patients would bleed tremendously. The bottom line is we look for evidence-based, it's got to be monitored, it's got to be tested, and sure, certain medications damage the kidneys. They all give you the, the side effects, and they need to be used judiciously and wisely and carefully. And what... Never been tested. Question, and then we're going to round off. Risk benefit ratio. You may die. Okay. Okay. This is a very important point that. Uh, Pastor White has brought up, and I think this is very crucial to spend a moment on. You asked the question, and we're going to amplify it a little bit further. Do certain medications damage the kidney? Yes, they can. What we have to work out with any treatment intervention, does the risk of giving the medication outweigh the benefit or does the benefit outweigh the risk? In other words, hmm? well, first you've got to establish there's a benefit. But secondly, we would, we, we, in clinical practice, one is faced daily with a decision. The intervention I want to propose for this patient must do them more good than harm. And the only way you can know is by having a large data bank of, of uh, data where you know that if you do this intervention, the chances of it being beneficial to the patient are so much. Therefore, it's worth doing it. If there's a 50-50 chance, I don't think it's worth going for that. I, I, we like to go with a p-value of 0, 0, 0, 0, 1 or less so that it's not chance, that the benefits are there. And sometimes you have to make a very calculated clinical decision and explain to the patient this could do you harm, but the chances of it doing you good are much more to your benefit in the long term. And so you make an informed interaction with the individual on their health. So risk benefits, very important. Are the benefits greater than the risk? And if they are, then you go for it. They don't pass urine at all. Oh. Okay, that's what we're going to close on. Are they making it or passing it? You see, the question that you're asking when you're not seeing urine anymore or they're not making it because in some instances you can be pr producing urine and there could be a stone or a blockage you see the urine is produced here uh, is produced in the kidney comes into the pelvis calyx in the pelvis down into the ureter down into the bladder and at a number of points and the prostate in the male is just down here Sometimes there can be an obstruction. In adults, it can be, a, in, and in children, it could be a stone, could be a tumor, could be an infection, could be trauma, could be congenital. 
can have the same kind of situation here in the bladder. In, elderly, in older males, you can get the prostate, which can actually block off the production or the, the outflow of urine or the release of urine. So there's one component is what we call post-renal, after the kidney, blockage and obstruction, but the urine is still being made in here. Then you have, which is probably the much worse situation, where this fails, renal. So when there's renal failure and the kidney cannot produce urine, that's when one needs to put the patient onto what we call dialysis. Now there are many causes, and remember we've been talking in our talks about congenital, acquired, which includes inflammatory, infective, neoplastic, traumatic, um, autoimmune, uh, infectious. So infections can do it. Um, infections can damage the kidney itself and cause kidney failure. Malignancies can cause problems. The, cutting the blood supply off. Esther asked the question, if you cut the blood supply off to the kidney, the kidney will die. So in, in those events, the kidney stops making urine. Beyond this, when people are no longer passing urine, if this is normal, you can often buy, and here's a picture of one, where there's a catheter being placed there to drain the urine to go beyond an obstruction. They put a stent in here to open the obstruction so that urine can come through. There's much more to this. There are notes. It's a fascinating subject to remember that we have been fearfully and wonderfully made with our own detoxifying, waste-clearing mechanisms built in by a loving, caring creator. Take good care of them as best as you can. This media was produced by Audioverse for the NAD Health Summit. If you would like to learn more about the NAD Health Summit, please visit www.nadhealthsummit.com. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.